Number 8. Three Cosmic Messages, Second Quarter, 2023. Daniel Duda. Happy Sabbath, everyone. This morning we have Lesson 8, The Sabbath and the End, and Daniel Duda will be our moderator. Before we start, Bob Kern is going to offer us a prayer. Bob. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us all here together, all over the world in this one spot. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. Thank you for giving it to Daniel as he prepared for the lesson. Please send it to the rest of us today as we participate in the discussion so that we will be blessed and those who listen to this later will also be blessed and that your spirit and your character will be made known to those that we come in contact with. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, Bob. Hello, everybody, and greetings and blessings. We are on lesson number eight, and we continue the quarter on the three angels' messages. You know from the context that the three angels' messages is God's response to what was going on in chapter 13. And so you have the false trinity, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet who are imitating the work of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And the result is, according to Revelation 13, 8, and all inhabitants of the earth will worship the beast. And then John qualifies it, actually, not all those whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life. We learn about them in chapter 14, 1, that they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. But the result of this satanic demonic powers is a worldwide deception. And so basically, more or less, the whole world is deceived. Now, the important thing in this context is verse 10, 13, 10. This calls for patient endurance and faithfulness on the part of God's people. And as we start this lesson that looks at the Sabbath in the context of end-time prophecies, this is an important aspect to keep in mind. The prophecies were not given so that you play a smart cookie and say, I know what you don't know. The prophecies were not given so that you can look down on everybody else as subhuman, sub-Christian, dumb Adventists or whatever, people who don't know what you know. The purpose of the prophecy is to call for faithfulness to God and endurance when things are not exactly what you expect. And that's why we can never use the Bible as a crown. Look at me. Look at how good I am. I am doing what nobody else is doing. Or you cannot use the Bible as a stick to beat everybody else that they should be doing what you are doing. And in that context, let's go to the memory text, which is Ephesians 3.9. And to make everyone see what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. And let's read verse 10 as well. So that through the church, the wisdom of God in its rich variety might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Okay, so God's intent is that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known to the universe and to everybody else. And so he is making plain to everyone this mystery. You need to remember the mystery in the Bible is not something that cannot be understood, but the mystery is something that we know because we have been initiated. We would have never figured this out ourselves. So when people say, oh, it's a mystery, and mean, don't even try to understand it, or it's not supposed to be shared. No, Paul says this mystery 
God now made plain to everybody. So it's supposed to be shared. But mystery is something that we know because we have been initiated. It has been revealed to us. It's not something that we figured out. Remember when Peter says in Matthew 16, in answering Jesus' question, so who do you say I am? And Peter says, you are the Mashiach. You are the Messiah, the son of the living God. Jesus says to him, you are blessed because you did not figure it out because of your brain power, because of your experience, because of your observation skills. It has been revealed to you from above. It's the result of God's revelation. And what is that God's revelation? That through the church, through you and me, through the believers, the manifold wisdom of God will be made known not only to this world, but also to the angels, to the rulers and authorities in heavenly realm. And let's read verse 12 and 13. In whom we have access to God in boldness and confidence through faith in him. I pray, therefore, that you may not lose heart over my sufferings for you. They are your glory. Okay. Now, to understand Ephesians 3, 9 to 10, you need to read it in the context of Ephesians 1, 9 to 10. Paul uses the same language there, and now he just picks it up and develops it further in chapter 3, Ephesians 1, 9 and 10. He has made known to us the mystery of his will, according to his good pleasure that he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time, to gather up all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. Okay, so here it says that God is doing something through Christ, something that involves everything, all things, and it's something that brings him pleasure, according to his good pleasure. Usually we do not associate words God and pleasure together. But Paul says that whatever God does, he does because of his pleasure. God enjoys what he does. And what it is that he does, that is to be put into effect in the fulfillment of times, it says to bring together into unity all things. Now, in Greek, all this is just one word, and it's a word in a future tense. In classical Greek, it's used when you add up things. So when you do 1 plus 2 plus 3 plus 4 plus 5 plus 6 plus 7, then you anakephalaiosastai. You are putting things together. And so Paul is saying that God does something that brings him joy and it's to put things together. And of course, it can also mean to gather up, to recapitulate, to retell. So the story has been told in a certain way from a certain perspective. And you see that in Revelation 12. And then there is a response to that from the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, the false trinity. Through certain perspective, through certain lens, the power and the threats are used that people cannot buy, cannot sell, so that it's achieved. Whatever these powers that use power to manipulate and deceive do, but God counteracts it through retelling, recapitulating, or telling the story in a different way. Now, notice that God does not remove the nasty bits or the unfortunate events, but by retelling them, he puts them in a different light. And so, the question as we go into this lesson, in light of the memory text, is how is the Sabbath part of God's retelling the story of humanity, the story of the universe, and the story of the family? Does the Bible have something to say about that? Lou? 
the Sabbath is certainly linked to creation, the God of creation. So that's one of the things that is so important for us to understand how God created the world and his purpose for creating the world. It really reveals who God is. He created this beautiful blue marble in his universe for us humans to enjoy and to tell us about him, nature, and all of his love, how much he loves us. Yes, thank you. So in the story of creation, the Sabbath gives purpose, gives dignity, gives meaning to human beings. Notice God did not create a large black stone so that people come and by worshiping the stone, they show respect and worship to God. He creates something that Abraham Heschel calls a cathedral in time, a temple in time. Under number six in study notes, you have a beautiful quotation from this Jewish theologian, which is regarding the Sabbath and the future, because the title of the lesson is Sabbath and the end. We will look at that. But let's first look back. And in this way, God creates a cathedral in time so that everybody can enter it. You don't have to travel afar. You don't need to be rich to be able to afford to travel. The Sabbath comes to you, regardless of your status, regardless of your social economical position where you are on the ladder. And it's available to everybody, to all people. Iris? In our materialistic world, there is a danger of us accumulating things, sometimes status symbols and we put one beside another and then we forget about them we get tired of them the minute we have acquired something it almost loses its charm i'm saying this in contrast to the way god related to human beings i think the sabbath is a big exclamation mark that he delights in relationship with his creation, with his created human beings. He doesn't just put us there and says, look here, another star. Oh, I've made man now and added that to the addition in the big universe. No, he engages in relationship as soon as man is made on the sixth day. And that gives us profound meaning and a profound purpose. And that's why we can really only find our true purpose only in relationship with him. And if we lose that out of our sight, we really don't know why we are in this world. And we do all sorts of things that are meaningless. So the Sabbath in some ways celebrates the wonderful purpose that God has given us as his beloved children. And that relationship is for keeps and is not just a one-time thing. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you, Aris. Well said. Henry? I think that the Bible says a lot about the Sabbath and that intention that God wanted to have as an important revelation. We are not told too much in the Genesis narrative about the Sabbath. It's just that God stopped working. That's about it. But if we move forward, we find in Exodus the description of what that meant and that revelation that was intended for the Sabbath to do. In Exodus 20, God, from verses 8 and on, he is making this call to remember. And for us, it's not much remembering because there is not that much description before. So it is probably our exposure to what we needed to keep in mind. And he says, well, remember that God was the creator and the creator of everything. 
And for us to remember, he is making a call and he says, you stop working. Don't do any work, but watch out. I'm not saying that for you to work, you have to put your son to work for you because your son is not going to work either. And keep an eye. Don't expect your daughter to help you both because your son is not working and you are not working because your daughter is not going to work either. And if you are already looking outside, who is outside the tent to be helping, don't look at your manservant, your maidservant, because they are not going to be working either. And he knows our nature, right? Obviously looking for who is going to be doing the work, but not even the beasts, because God created everything in the beginning and did not ask you for any work to do that. And he set up all of the things to take care of you. So to me, that's the big revelation that the Sabbath does, what that actually meant, showing the character of God, the God of service, the God that created everything and continue to serve us today. And I think that's what makes that connection with the unifying everything together. Because we have have a clear description of what God intended to do from the very beginning. Yes, excellent. So this is the last lesson on the first angel's message. And there are three verbs there in the first angel's message, which is eternal gospel. So it's a positive news. Fear, glorify, and worship. Fear God, glorify God, and worship God. So the object is always God. Now, why is that important? What is the context? Terry, can you read for us Revelation 13.4? They worship the dragon, for he had given his authority to the beast. And they worshiped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast, and who can fight against it? Okay, so people worship the dragon. Why? Because dragon acts by giving authority to the beast, a clear anti-trinity. So the father gives authority to the son, and people worship the son. So the dragon gives authority to the beast, and people also worship the beast. And then you have two questions. Who is like the beast? They are those who worship the beast because they admire the beast. They identify with the values. So in the context of Revelation 12, you have Mikael, who is like God. And here you have who is like the beast. And then the second one is who can make war against the beast. The other is resignation. You can't win anyway. So certain people do not identify with the values, but they say there is no point of fighting the beast because you cannot win. And the result of verse 4 is, verse 7. Also, it was allowed to make war on the saints to conquer them. It was given authority over every tribe and people and language and nation. So as a result of this, that people say, we like the beast because who is like, or there is no point of fighting. The beast makes the war against the saints and is victorious and has the authority over every tribe, people, language, and nation. Have you heard this before? Or are you going to hear this again? Yes. And verse 8, the next verse says, the result is, And all the inhabitants of the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb that was slaughtered. Okay. And how does the beast accomplish this? That all the inhabitants are every kindred, nation, tongue, and people? or tribe, people, language, and nation are worshipping, verse 16. Also, it causes all, both small and great, both rich and poor, both free and slave, to be marked on the right hand or the forehead. So it forces everyone, 
And so, verse 17, no one can... No one can buy or sell who does not have the mark. That is, the name of the beast or the number of its name. Okay, so it uses the force and uses the economic lobbying or forcing by economic means. Now, notice that the context of Revelation 13 and 14 is worship. Verse 4, 13, and they worship the dragon and they worship the beast. Verse 8, and everyone who lives on the earth will worship the beast. Verse 12, and he will cause on the earth and those who live in it to worship the first beast. Verse 15, in order that the image of the beast might speak and might cause anyone who does not worship the image to be killed. And so, chapter 14, verse 9, if anyone worships the beast and its image, there is the warning. And verse 11, those who worship the beast and the image. So in chapter 13 and 14, six times worship is mentioned. So it's obvious that the final crisis of earth history is around worship. Seven times worship is mentioned in chapter 17 and 14. Six times it's the call to worship the beast or the image. And only once is the call to worship God. And that's the first angel's message in 14.7. Now notice this worship to God must be in opposition to what the beast does. So forces people. That's what Henry said. And God says, do not work. That doesn't mean that you are going to force your son, your daughter, your slaves, your animals. No, then you don't understand. Then you are the beast because you are forcing someone else to do something for you. And so as a response to this crisis of worship, we read in Revelation 14.1. Then I looked and there was the lamb standing on Mount Zion. And with him were 144,000 who had his name and his father's name written on their foreheads. So, and the whole world went after the beast, except there is a group. And remember, numbers in Revelation mean quality, not quantity. So there is a group of certain quality who follow the lamb, don't follow the beast. And why is it? Because they have his name, lamb's name, and the father's name on their forehead where the person does their thinking. And so, here is the context of worship. Let's read chapter 14, verse 7, Revelation 14, 7, to see the context. What does it say about the worship? He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, for the hour of his judgment has come. And worship him who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of water. So here you have that we are supposed to worship the one who created heaven and earth and the sea. Once again, you have this. And the fountains of water. So heaven, earth, sea, and fountains of water means everything, like kindred, nation, tongue, and people. And the four beings give God glory and honor and power and majesty. Four things, so it means everything. Now, this is the closest you get to the quotation from Exodus 20, verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth and the sea and all that is in them, but he rested on the seventh day. So, you have the heavens, the earth, and the sea, and then it adds the fountains of the water here. It's in the context of destroying the earth that the fountains are added. Remember, Israel is surrounded by the desert, so the lack of water is a major problem. And that's why this call for worshiping God. All right, Larry. Is religion going to get pushed to the side? Is that possible? And the idea is more about how we think and who has the right to set up morality. If the Sabbath really is 
God's Sabbath, but it was his gift to us from the marriage scenario of you have the groom giving the bride a diamond ring is our traditional way of thinking about the battle possibly completely wrong? And should we be opening our minds to think a little bit differently about how this is going to come about? Okay, Larry. So what is the answer? The short answer to me is yes. I do believe that we have to really look outside the box that we've been trained with. And if the answer is yes, is the yes because we are sick and tired of the old answer? Is it because we don't like the old answer? Yeah. It didn't work. So how would we arrive that in the context of studying the Bible, which calls for faithfulness and endurance, we come to a better, newer, deeper understanding? For most people, the purpose of the Sabbath school lesson is to confirm what we have always believed. So that you can say, we have looked at the Bible and voila, can you believe it? It teaches exactly the same thing that we have always believed. Isn't that amazing? Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. So you just pray and you go home because it confirms what you have always believed. Now, in today's world, it's called confirmation bias. On social media, it's called eco chamber. And it cannot be the purpose of studying the Bible. So from what we said so far, can you see that God is going to have a group, there is going to be a community, according to Revelation 14.1, who is immune against the deception of this power of everybody does it, whether they do it because of conviction or just because compliance, going with the majority. And it's because they understood something about the nature of Godhead, the nature of who God is. They follow the Lamb. They have the name of the Lamb. They have the name of the Father. There's something about the character of Lamb and the character of the Father that helps these people to stand apart so that the three angels' messages is God's answer to the demagogy of the beast, dragon, and the false prophet. So that the untreated, this false trinity, powers cannot exercise their deception on completely every kindred nation tongue and people on everybody let's go to michael i wasn't raised as an adventist but i was given rules of blind obedience these are the things you must believe these are the things to which you must adhere without questioning the validity of any of it and i think it's much more significant at least it is for me use my natural reason, do some inquiry, and come to my own conclusions and see whether or not I agree with some of these things I was taught. Some of them I don't agree with anymore. Some of them I think are correct. And I don't parse them out so that here's 73 things I still believe and 114 things I no longer think are correct. I just don't do it that way. But in fact, the reason I come to this Sabbath school, I know is to increase my knowledge and hopefully to inform me to make rational decisions about my life and my relationship with God. Yeah, thank you. And let's pick up on that, that if you use your power to think, to reason, to choose, which is part of God's creation, that's how we are different, that's part of what God's image in us is, is it for God's glory or is it something that God is scared of? In other words, is God more interested in the outcome, that is, that you and I make the right decision, or is he more interested in the process? 
because that goes to the core of his character. When I was an undergraduate course in ethics, the instructor said, God gave you an intellect and an ability to reason. God meant you to use it. And I think that's a message for all of us constantly throughout our lives. And that's the contrast with uh, chapter 13 of Revelation, because there is no freedom under the dragon beast or the false prophet. There is only enforcing the party line. One way of seeing, one way of acting for the whole world. Sean? In Paul's development of his own understanding from, for example, Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 3, 9 and 10, if indeed when he says, verse 10, Ephesians 3, consequently, the many-sided wisdom of God may now, which he did not include the now in the verses in chapter 1, may now be made known through the church. Now, I understand that Paul's context in his time, he would have naturally assumed certain things about what the church is, who the church is comprised of. But I think in the centuries since, in the development of time and understanding and the inclusiveness that we now live with today, we ourselves might all agree that, yes, this manifold wisdom of God, in other words, who God is, the clear understanding of the character of God, may indeed be revealed through the church. The question is, who is that church? And I think that we have, in times past, discussed at length and quite clearly that the church is a community of people who are growing in their understanding of who this God is and may or may not include the stripe that we wear on our own sleeve, that people from around the world may indeed be a part of this church that is now coming to an understanding of God and revealing who this God is may include people of all stripes. And I think that openness, that consideration is something that Paul himself perhaps was beginning to come to out of his own background, his very conservative background. I think he began to realize that, wow, his own vision and understanding of who God would have him to promote and or include may be a little bit different than what his upbringing was. So, I think furthering that today here should include that this church of God is comprised of many, many more people with many different backgrounds than we may have wanted to (laughs) include in our own company. Thank you. Thank you, Sean. Terry. Well, it seems to me that when we really work through a thing for ourselves, then when we attempt to describe and discuss it with others, there is an authenticity in us and in what we're saying that comes through. And it also helps solidify it into our own minds. But without that authenticity, if we're just rehearsing something that we have been told that we believe that we're supposed to believe, but it's not really a part of our own understanding and our own ideas, then I think that people can easily dismiss it because it comes across that we're just rehearsing something that we don't buy into. And then it's fake. And Eventually, it seems to me, then we also will dismiss it. Yep. And why would God be interested in that? How would that bring glory to him? It cheapens it. Yep. And the context of the first angel's message is show respect. We have covered that when he talked about fear God. What does it mean? Show respect. 
give glory to him, meaning putting God first, maintain the relationship even when you can't maintain the standard, even when you can't perform to your and God's expectation. Don't throw out the relationship out of the window just because you can't perform. That gives glory to God. And worship him. And here we come to the crux of the matter. But let's take Bob Kern first, and then let me bring it a notch further. Well, I don't know if this is on the subject anymore, but I'm hearing an undertone of the idea of we discuss or there is a phrase that the ends justify the means. And I think God is trying to demonstrate more so that the means will justify the ends. And there was somebody made a comment about the younger people having an advantage over the older people in discussing and defining some of these things. And I'm not so sure that's the case. I'm reminded of an Ellen White statement that when we get to heaven, we're going to have much to learn and much more to unlearn. And I think the older and the younger generations have all been fed the same set of lies. And we're, we're all kind of working, trying to work through all that stuff. So again, I don't think the older or the younger has any real advantage over the other one. Okay, thank you. Let me start this way. Where would you go in the Bible to find that the time is coming when whole of humanity is going to be divided into two groups and their eternal destiny is going to be decided depending on which side you are on? Where in the Bible would you go to find that all people are going to be divided into two groups and their eternal destiny depends on in which group you are to be found? Right now, in the world in which we live, humanity can be divided into numerous different categories. But the Bible says that the eschatological time, eschatological crisis is coming on the world. And the result of that crisis will be that the whole world can be divided into two groups. And depending where you are found, it's going to determine the eternal outcome. Wheaton tears. Okay, very good. Now, if I ask this question in a typical Seventh-day Adventist church, what is going to be the answer? Matthew 25, the sheep and goats. Actually, Patrick, not in a Seventh-day Adventist church. In a typical Seventh-day Adventist church, you end up with Revelation 13, you end up with the Sunday law. But if I ask in a Christian group, then the answer is Matthew 25, as Patrick pointed out, or as Karen put in the chat, the sheep and goats, or Bob Kern said wheat and tares. So there is more than one place in the Bible where it speaks about this division. It probably don't need me to explain to you why the Adventist pioneers found themselves, their identity in Revelation 14, the first angel's message. So this is the first message that was preached during the Millerite movement. Nobody even noticed that there is a second message until they started to be disfellowshipping from the established churches for preaching the soon coming, the second coming of Jesus. And then they noticed actually that there is a second message, and we will discuss that in future lessons. And because they are an apocalyptic movement who found their identity and themselves in the words of the revelation, they find also the eschatological division of humanity in the apocalyptic literature in Revelation 13 and 14. However, if you look at other parts of the Bible, you discover that the Bible speaks about the sheep and the goats and the last judgment. It speaks about the wheat and tares. Now, we already mentioned that Revelation 14.7 is as close as it gets to the quotation of the fourth commandment in the New Testament. And because of this language, 
parallel and the structural parallels and the fact that you have a worldwide conflict that deals with worship, it's easy to conclude this is about the Sabbath. It's about the day. Now, it cannot be about the day. The whole nation at the time of Jesus and his crucifixion shows that it cannot be about the day because they kept the right day, yet they rejected their creator and their Messiah. And they went home thinking, we have done a good job. In the name of God, we got rid of this pretender to be our king and the Messiah, because obviously he is not. And it cannot be about the day, because even today, if you travel to a certain part of the world, you will find the whole nation that keeps the right day, even to the extent that they might vandalize your car if you decide to use it on Sabbath. Because you are just not supposed to do that. You are not keeping the Sabbath properly. So be careful where you go with your car on Sabbath day in certain parts of a certain city because it's not going to end up well. So it must be about something else, which brings us back to Ephesians 1 and 3, putting things together that the Sabbath is a symbol of something else. All right, let's go to Dan Kido. The People that I remember in my life are the ones that helped me to grow. And I frequently refer to those people when I talk to other people about meaningful people in my life. I also, in my mind, think of people who sort of led me down the garden path also and caused me to waste time or do frivolous things. And so if we put this into the context of what you're talking about, Timothy says that God has kept us from every evil and that he's preserved for us the kingdom. And it seems to me that that is maybe the basis, that he has helped us to grow more than anyone else. And he's given us the great gift of reason to help us to grow. And it seems to me that maybe the dividing line might be people who are willing to grow with Christ and those who want to live in more of a passive, sort of more destructive lifestyle. And so I think the idea of a entitlement society that we now live in is really a fairly destructive idea. And I think it really leads to bad things. And I think it's ideas like that that will prevent people from getting into the kingdom. So I think the division is a fairly, do people want to grow? Because I think one has to grow if one's going to comprehend who Christ is. Or does one want to take the easy way out and take the wide way? I think that's the big division. There's a quotation from the lesson that comes in Monday's lesson. It's because our world so desperately needs the reassuring message of creation that God gave us the Sabbath. Uh, yes, yes, definitely. But no, God did not give us Sabbath as a response to Darwin's book on the origin of species. God gave the Sabbath to Adam and Eve. God gave the Sabbath to people who have been freshly rescued from Egypt slavery. God gave the Sabbath to people in Babylonian exile. And Jesus rescued the correct meaning from a distorted understanding of Sabbath in the first century Judaism. So Sabbath is for everyone, beginning with the first man and woman, Adam and Eve, and till the last, until the end of human history. It's more than the Sabbath. And here is a beautiful illustration. Adventists did not invent the Sabbath. The Seventh-day Baptists established their first congregation in London in 1650, and in America in 1671, 20 years later, in Newport, Rhode Island, 
And that was the result of the culmination of 40 years of trying to reform the Church of England, but they realized the Church of England is not going to change, so we better start our own movement. Now, Rachel Oakes was a Seventh-day Baptist laywoman who testified about her convictions to Millerites, and Frederick Wheeler, the preacher, accepted it. But the most Millerites didn't see much light in it because they were convinced they are supposed to preach the first angel's message. The hour of his judgment has come, so the second coming is coming. This was the present truth, the most important thing to be preached, and they were not bothered by the Sabbath that much. But then after the great disappointment and in the Sabbath conferences when they hammered out what are we supposed to believe, what was good about that movement that needs to be kept and what was not so good that needs to be discarded. Finally, the church was organized in 1863 with a few conferences and then about 3,500 members. Now, Seventh-day Baptists believe that we are not saved by what we do. We are saved by the grace of Christ and the finished work of Christ on the cross. But yet, according to the fourth commandment, it's still important in Christian era to keep the seventh-day Sabbath. They have been preaching it since 17th century. And today, let me give you the American statistics first. In 1944, they had 64 churches in America and 6,500 members. And in 2004, they had 97 churches. So they have grown the number of churches about 50%. However, they have only about 6,000 members in the United States. Worldwide, Seventh-day Baptists have 19 conferences in 30 countries, and they claim to have over 20,000 members. Now, they are preaching that the fourth commandment of the Decalogue is still binding. We are not saved by what we do. They are Protestants, but the Sabbath is still important. What is it that putting the Sabbath into the framework of an eschatological crisis resulted that the Seventh-day Adventist Church has 731 conferences? in 212 countries and 22 million members. Emphasizing the Sabbath alone on the basis of the fourth commandment is not going to have a great impact on this world. Seventh-day Baptists are founding members of the World Council of Churches. They are part of the National Alliance of Churches in America. In the UK, where they started and spread from here, to the United States and Jamaica, they have two congregations, one in London, fledgling, and one in Birmingham. What is it about framing the Sabbath in the right context that brings the message that people see that the sign is about something bigger than it points towards? Because that's what we talked about. Carol? Well, to me, the Sabbath is a sign of freedom. Now, it wasn't always that way. When I converted from Catholicism, which I was taught was the one true church, to Adventism, I converted to correct theology, and the Sabbath was a sign. It was also a rule, and I enforced it as much as I could in my house. It was not a free day. It was full of rules. And I know through the years, the witness that I gave through my keeping the Sabbath that way didn't bring anybody to the Lord. That has changed a great deal, but it's taken a lot of time and finding Graham Maxwell's Sabbath school class, getting the bigger picture that the Sabbath is a day of freedom where we can reach our own conclusions, study to see our judgment of God. I'm almost afraid to say that. It seems almost blasphemous that we get to judge God. 
But that's the context of the first angel's message. That's right. And it has loosened me up. I sometimes find myself falling into rigidity. But since moving here to Massachusetts from California during COVID and not being able to nestle right in with my church family, which was my first object, we're social beings and my social comfort zone is in my church. Couldn't go for two years. And the Lord has taught me that he has people outside of our denomination. I just had to reach out in other ways through next door, for example, and find out now I'm having a Bible study with a nurse practitioner, a psychiatric nurse practitioner who has trouble with theosity. And I'm learning from her too. And it's wonderful being able to reach out. We went and actually volunteered at another church for a memorial service from a couple that we met. And they knew we're Seventh-day Adventists. He said, it's your Sabbath. And I said, yes, but we reach out and try and do good things on the Sabbath. This is something that we're free to do because we don't have the obligation to do our everyday work. And that has been a bigger witness than the times I have told people, I can't do this because it's the Sabbath. To me, the Sabbath is a day of freedom. In honor of freedom-loving God, who creates his created beings with such a freedom that they can blindly follow him. They can say into his face, I hate you. I don't want to have anything to do with you. Or they can embark on this journey of exploration with wonder and joy and see where this journey is going to lead us. So let's go to Larry. The part that we've never yet addressed here that was brought up in the lesson, that the Sabbath was a test. Now, since nobody's come to the defense of the legalists on their idea of the Sabbath being a test, I'd like to suggest that it is a test. It is a test to see how openly and creatively we can come to use that 24 hours to worship, understand, know, be in awe, communicate with God and with our fellow believers and people who feel like we do. So if there is something different, does that explain part of the reason why it's so uniquely attacked by Lucifer and why he's trying to create the counterfeit? Okay, we mentioned that the first angel's message has three verbs, three commands. Fear God, glorify God, and worship God. You have covered the first two under the capable teaching of John Pauline. This is the last lesson on the first angel's message. So when it speaks about worshiping God, worshiping the creator, the one who made all things, what is it? What is it that's going to produce a community of people who can stand up against the dictate of majority, against the economic boycott, you name it, you have it all in Revelation 13, that people are so convinced so sealed into the truth, to use the language of Ellen White, that they will say, no, this is where I stand, and I'm not going to be moved. What does it mean, this worship? How is it that the three angels' messages produce a response in certain people that these people don't follow the beast, don't comply, but they follow the lamb? Iris, help us. Well, that's a little daring, but let me at least try I think these people fundamentally distinguish between who is God and who isn't because they understand that only God is the one who deserves to sit on his throne because of his integrity, because of the kind of God that he is. 
So they know the character of God so well. They are not misled in powers that are fake, that are pretending but not delivering and not deserving to sit in a position of power and authority to start with. So I believe Revelation says they follow the Lamb wherever he goes. And I think they have adopted a lifestyle of constantly looking, where's God leading? And naturally, they respond to that call of God in their lives. That's the way they do life, even without the end-time crisis. And so when that crisis comes, they have no other way of doing life than just simply moving in the direction where the Lamb is going, where He is showing them the way. That's their natural response after having served God before through the little crises, through the little tribulations and challenges and attacks that Satan constantly brings on our lives. That's my response. Yeah, very well said. Thank you. Thank you, Iris. Karen? As I was thinking about this, I was thinking that Sabbath is an incredible gift of love from God. And when we are in love with God, we just want to spend that time with Him. And it's a gift to explore with delight, not a day full of do's and don'ts. It's freely responding to God's loving character in all its dimensions. And I think when something fills you with so much joy and passion, you don't want to walk away from that. It's just something so beautiful, this foretaste of heaven filled with wonder and joy. And it can't be shaped by do's and don'ts. It's full of gifts like time to spend with God, to get to know Him more and others, and to show compassion to those who are suffering and to explore God's creation. There's just so many gifts packed into this gift of Sabbath that tell us of God's love, and we just want to respond to that. So the highest form of worship then will not be the blind submission. Have you ever had a boss who would not tolerate if you did something different than he or she imagined? Because being a boss was about controlling and power, and that God is not interested in you or me blindly submitting because what kind of character that creates. But it's about the journey of exploration that develops the best in you as a being created in God's image. You put some amazing things in the chat. Can we connect what you put about me and my sweet Jesus with Matthew 24, that the true worshiping God develops in you not only the power to explore who God is and to enjoy God, but also to see others around you to see what you have not seen before the little ones when the goats say and when were we seen you in this situation because for you we would do anything and jesus responds but you know what the problem is you would do it for me but you didn't do it for the little ones you just didn't care so they bow down to the power and authority but it did not produce the character of other centeredness of caring of seeing the potential that these people who also carry the image of God have. Henry. Calls the attention that the six days creation of this world comes as we understand as Adventists as the response of God of the judgment that was taking place in heaven. That conflict that began in there was a judgment. God was being judged there. And he decided to create this world as an evidence, as a revelation to answer those accusations. He took the six days and then stopped presenting the evidence and said, okay, this is the cathedral in time so you can look at what I have done, universe. And that was the Sabbath. That was the beginning. That's what he's asking, not, not to work because we don't have to be distracted 
we have to be looking into the real concept, who God is, and the universe was given that opportunity back on first Sabbath on Earth. And at the end of times, the same scenario repeats itself. But it's now not just uh, heavens, but this Earth, and the Sabbath is being called again as the opportunity to look back, not only at creation times, but all of the redemptive work that God has done, this recreation once more, and to stop and use Sabbath for the judgment. So we can come to the point and determine, make our decision, who God really is. And that will make the difference of where we would like to stand. Not what he is putting us, but where, what place we are choosing to be. That calls my attention, this repetition of the call for Sabbath at the beginning and at the end of this experiment we call life in this earth. Okay. I'm going to call on Terry. You put in the chat how it feels when you never can do something right. It has something to do with the character of the one that we serve. You know how it is when you're with someone, when this brings up my past, so give me a minute. Yeah, yeah, no problem. When we're with someone who you can never do or say anything right, you're always on guard, you're always worried, you're never relaxed. Even when something that you've done a hundred times and it's just by rote, when you're with them, somehow it comes off wrong and there's nothing there. But when you're with someone who isn't always criticizing and telling you that, oh, sorry, you just didn't get it quite right this time. You need to try again. Maybe you won't be so stupid next time. Then you can relax and things just flow and things that you thought you never could do just seem to happen. And it's okay. And it's nice. And it's comfortable. And then you can grow. And that's what God is interested in you because of creating us in his image. He put this immense potential for growth into each one of us. And that's the type of experience that he is looking for. So on one hand, you have the powers that oppress, that insist that it needs to be done in a certain way, and everybody must be doing the same thing, you know, the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet. And on the other hand, you have a freedom-loving God who allows you to explore and be who you are created to be. Michael? I was just thinking that Sitting here and enjoying the company of all of you is one aspect, but how do I behave after this program ends today? What will I do afterwards? My point being is things like walking out of church and saying, oh, there's Mr. and Mrs. Jones. Let's get going. He is such a bore. It's so subtle that I don't realize what I'm doing, that how disgraceful that kind of conduct is. And it's easy to forget that the demands that I try to lead a true Christian life means 24 hours every single day and try to give everybody else with whom I come in contact their own human dignity. And it, that means we're expecting that everybody is different from one another. Thank you, Michael. Larry? The idea of worship and being in awe is that when we understand God, we're in awe of him and human nature is to kind of model the people that you're in awe of. So when we look at this and the idea of the prodigal son and then the Lord's prayer came to mind about the part of forgiveness. The father forgave his son at the time he gave him the money. 
He didn't forgive him when he came back. He forgave him the day, the moment he gave him his share. The idea of God's forgiveness to us occurred prior to creating the world. So he forgave us before we ever did anything wrong. The idea then is that I need to forgive people before they do something wrong to me. And this is a recent idea for me. And something happened to me in the last four to five weeks where a close friend of mine took advantage of me and did things that close friends should not have done. And in the context of that, I sent him a note and explained how I still valued what he has done for me and how it helped me. I don't have resentment for what happened. And Jeannie and I have talked about how unusual that is for me. So the idea of me being created in God's image is also a good thing and a bad thing, because that also means that you're created in God's image. And with the same level of individuality that I'm created with, and I need to respect that. And that is the extremely complicated part of life, is respecting individuality of people who, A, you don't agree with, and even worse, people who have actually done something antagonistically towards you. So that, I think, is what this competition for morality of who gets to define how we think and is an attempt to create a God that takes over the intellectual powers that God has given us. Thank you. Bob? Uh, Something that you wonder about is when Christ was here, actually what Michael said just made me think of this. Christ tried extremely hard to be very respectful of the people he had, even when they had strong ideas differently. I know the money changer in the temple incident was kind of an unusual time, but when he was trying to persuade very hard the people he'd come to save, he still stayed very respectful of them. And his methods of persuasion were different than I suppose we use a lot, which is sort of a marvel because he was very, desperate's not the word, but he had a very focused mission on trying to reach mankind. But the way he did it was not forceful, even though he has all this power. And I think about that because when those of us a lot in the business of persuasion, which we all are to some extent, could take a lesson from it. But sometimes you think, how do you grasp those lessons and internalize them? Because, well, I guess it's a daily work. Okay, thank you. So, Revelation 13 to 14 tells us that everybody one day will end up worshiping somebody or something. For some people, it lifts them up. For other people, it brings them down. If it brings you down to persecute those who are different than you, if you need to marginalize those who don't believe as you do, if you use power to uphold your understanding of truth, then you are a follower of the dragon and the beast. You are not the follower of Jesus. But if you see the potential in others, when you see the greatness, the goodness, and the glory that God brings in, as Bob said, how he treated people, and he still treats them, then worship places you in a position that God occupies the place that rightfully belongs to him. Then not things, no other people will be your gods, but they will be the object of your blessing and service. The purpose of worship is to prepare us to hear his voice, speaking to our individual hearts, seeing him at work in family, in the neighborhood, in the society. And when you recognize what God is doing, 
in your life, in the lives of others, in the society around you, then you can affirm it, then you can participate in that joyfully. And that in turn brings you closer to God and who he is and deepens your relationship with him. So God will have a community that does not exist for its own sake or to impose something on others, but to create a serving community, serving and worshiping community of connected people. And then these people follow the lamb wherever he goes. And they have the character of the lamb and the character of the father written everywhere on them. And people can decide whether they want to belong to that or want to be the part of oppressive and marginalizing community that needs to persecute those who are different than they are. Let's pray. Gracious Lord, we are thankful that you did not leave this world without witness to who you are. And that in times of great polarization, as we live through today, we can rest assured that you are doing everything to win us on your side, that you want us to follow you, the Lamb, to appreciate what you did for our salvation, the fact that you not only created us, but when we went away from you and forsook you, that you came to redeem us, and that till today you are working on our hearts, on our minds, to create a worshiping community that recognizes rightfully who you are, that shows the respect that we are not the ultimate measure of everything, and that brings glory to you by how we treat the little ones and those around us, that others might not see that potential. But you do, because they are also your children. Help us to be that type of community and stop judging and condemning and looking down upon all those who are different from us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.